If you've got your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn with me to the book of 1 John. 1 John. We're going to do a sermon that we kind of talk about annually, that we talk about on a sort of regular basis. So we're going to talk about a, a kind of an annual thing for us. It's called Be Rich because here's something that happened about um, a little over five years ago. Um, a little over five years ago, I was awakened to a... Thank you. Everybody say thank you, Jeff. All right. Uh, I was awakened to a verse that I had kind of um, looked over or had read but not really thought seriously about. And a little over five years ago, I read it in a new light. And I brought it to you as a church, and we've talked about it for the last five years. This is our sixth time to talk about it. Now, if you're not from here, if you're new to the church, if you haven't been around for six years, um, for six times, then you may be kind of like, what are we talking about with Be Rich, and what verse are you talking about? Let me show you the verse. This is not where we're going to be today, but I want to show you the verse. And it says this. This is First Timothy chapter 6. Paul is writing to his young protege. Kind of, He calls him his son in ministry. He says, instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of what is truly life. Now, let me ask you a question. Why, in my previous years in reading this, because I read First Timothy a lot, it's instruction manual for young ministers from Paul, why would I have overlooked this passage? Because I ain't rich. Right? That's what I thought, right? Because most of us in this room, if you're honest with yourselves, now some of you have been trained by me over the last five years, not to answer this question this way, but if I were just going to, man, you rich, you would say, no, no, we're not rich. In fact... Um, if you ask people, and this has been done, to write down on a sheet of paper what they think someone who is rich is worth or makes, what is almost always found out is it's somebody that makes a little bit more than them. Like, it's not me, but I'm going to tell you, if I could make 15000 more a year, then I'd be rich. And yet, the reality is that most of us in this room are rich. I found, and I'm not talking about, I'm not, although I, I don't disagree with this, I'm not talking about it in the It's a Wonderful Life, George Bailey, a man is no failure who has friends kind of way. I'm not talking about the spiritual thing. Well, I've got Jesus, and that means I don't need anything else. I'm talking about materialistically, most of this room are rich. And so when I, for instance, there, I don't know if you know about this website. There's a website called globalrichlist.com. Anybody ever been to globalrichlist.com? Not now. Don't go now. Some of you are already typing it in. All right. You can put in your annual income or if you're past annual income, you can put in your worth. So houses and possessions and things you own and you can put it in there and it will give you your ranking in the world. So, for instance, I did not put I put in the median income for a U.S. citizen living in a household median income. And it was $35,000. And if you make $35,000 or more, this is you. $35,000 U.S. income puts you in the top 0.81%. So we've talked about this, right? So there was this outcry a few years ago about the one percenters. Right? Like the one percenters run the world. Well, here's the truth. If you make a median American income, you're a one percenter. 
This is you. This is how many people on average in the world are poorer than you. Do you know what these people think you are? Rich. To give you another just perspective clue here, this is on this side. It gives you all these statistics. It tells you how long it would take an average worker in Ghana to make what you make in a year. An average worker in Ghana, it would take 218 years to make what you make in one. Or, this is the one that kind of blew me away as well, your monthly salary could pay the monthly salaries of 152 doctors in Kyrgyzstan. Now, you may not be able to find that on the map, but isn't that crazy? And so here's the reality. If we want to read past that particular place in Scripture that says, instruct those who are rich on this earth, like, well, that ain't me, it is you. You are rich. Turn to somebody next to you and tell them they're rich. Right? Now, the reason we've talked about that passage in First Timothy is this. Because the question for us is, then, when we know that, what do we do with it? How do we do well? How should we be rich? Today, I want to talk to you because I don't know if this, this is, realize this or not, but it's not the only place in First Timothy where it talks about how we should act as followers of Jesus Christ, particularly those of us that have been blessed, as many of us in this room, most of us in this room, a high percentage of us in this room has been blessed. And Jesus gave some very specific instructions about how we're to treat each other that led to what we're going to look at in 1 John chapter 3. In fact, in John chapter 13, as he is getting ready to go to the cross, this is in the upper room discourse. This is when he's washing disciples' feet, when he's telling them about the betrayal that's come. He has the Lord's Supper with them, the Last Supper. And part of that, in fact, he does this three times in that dialogue, he gives them this command. I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, how you love one another, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I said he mentioned it two other times. We'll leave that one on screen. But in John 15, 12, he says, this is my command, love one another as I have loved you. In John 15, 17, this is what I command you, love one another. Paul talked about this command a lot. He says in Romans 12:10, show family affection to one another with brotherly love. In Romans 13:8, do not owe anyone anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Galatians 5:13, you were called to be free brothers, only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for sin, but serve one another through love. In 1 Thessalonians, and may the Lord cause you to increase and overflow with love for one another and for everyone. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9, about brotherly love. You don't need me to write to you again because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. The author of Hebrews, whoever that is, says, and let us be concerned about one another in order to promote love among one another and good works. 1 Peter, Peter, the apostle says, by obedience to the truth, having purified yourselves for sincere love of the brothers, Love one another. You get a theme? That the way that we show the world that we are followers of Jesus Christ is that we love one another. Love and how we treat people 
is at the heart of the message of the gospel. Or to put it in a, 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 a kind of a uh, theological framework, orthopraxy proves orthodoxy. And all of God's people said, what? What is that? Orthopraxy means right practice or doing the right thing or doing what we're commanded to do. And that proves orthodoxy, which is that we have the right belief. It's James who says, you say you have faith. But if you have faith without works, that faith is dead. Now, that does not mean that it requires works to be saved. We know that is not the truth, right? For you're saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But we also have throughout Scripture this reality that if you are not showing the fruit of what God has done in your life by the way you live your life, you need to check whether or not you're saved. And that's what John's going to talk about in 1 John chapter 3. We're going to start in verses 10 and 11, and we're going to walk through several of these. We're going to skip over some some parts of this, and I'll tell you why. But I want us to look today at what is required of us that are rich in this world as believers in Jesus Christ to those that are around us. 1 John chapter 3 says, this is how it's God's children and the devil's children become obvious. Whoever does not do what is right is not of God. Orthopraxy proves orthodoxy. Especially the ones who does not love his brother or sister. From This is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Let me stop there for a minute. Where did John hear that? From Jesus, right? Where did he hear that from Jesus? What I read a minute ago from John chapter 13, chapter 15, in the upper room, in that discourse, we know Jesus talked about it other times, but in the end of his life, when Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross, when he's given final instructions before he leaves the earth, before he goes to, to fight the battle for our sins on the cross, he tells his followers, love one another. It was the essence of the message it was central to the gospel it was the reality that should come out of a life that had been sacrificed for us john says this is how you know whether or not you are from god or from the devil is how you love and he said this is how we've come to know love he says, and let's not just, let's not rip that away. Now he tells an illustration in between that last verse and this verse where he talks about Cain and Abel and he talks about Cain's hatred for his brother. But 1 John 3.16, which by the way, most people know John 3.16. They're not as familiar with 1 John 3.16. He says, this is how we know to come to know love. This is how we know it. He says, he laid down his life for us. God's love, Christ's love, has been demonstrated for us on the cross. Romans 5, 8 says that God proved his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you want the proof, if you want the essence, if you want the reality of the love of God has for you, you see it in the cross. We see it when we talk about the blood of Jesus that washed us clean. The power that is there to make us right. 
And I think it's interesting here. It says, this is how we have come to know. I've talked to you a little bit about the original languages have different kind of tenses of verbs. This is one of those perfect tense verbs, which means there is some point in our lives, there is some moment in our lives where we came to realize, that we came to understand, that we understood for the first time that God loved us so much that he literally sent his son. Jesus loved us so much that he willingly died for our sins. But that that realization, that moment, that understanding carries ramifications for our lives forever. So there was a moment, and that moment keeps on going. And then he says, he gives us three powerful things about that death. In this phrase, he says, he laid down his life. He says most people, the idea behind this is most people would think that the first law of life is self-preservation. Making sure you take care of yourself. Making sure you hear that in our society all the time. Make sure you take care of yourself. You can't take care of others till you take care of yourself. And yet Christ showed us that the first law of real humanity is self-sacrifice. Being willing to give up your life for someone else. It is something that is unfathomable to our human brains and even possibly to angelic understandings. There's a famous picture of an angel standing near the cross and they are touching with their fingers the sharp points of the thorn of crowns and on their face is this absolute look of astonishment. In short statement, John says that Jesus died voluntarily. He did it of his own free will. It wasn't forced there. That he died in our place. That's the gospel in a nutshell. Jesus in our place. And he also makes sure that we understand it was victorious. And he says basically, this is how we've come to know love. He laid down his life for us. And he's going to continue by saying that on the basis of what Christ has done for us. He says, this is how we've come to know. He laid down his life for us. Then he gives us the next part of it. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. By the way, this is not the golden rule. You know what the golden rule is, right? Do unto others what you would have them do unto you. This is beyond the golden rule. This is do unto others because of what's already been done for you. This isn't based on what they could do for you. This isn't based on what they could give you. This isn't based on who they could be for you. This is based on what Jesus has done. You lay down your lives because that's already been done for you. We could talk about the ramifications of lay down our lives, but there's more to get to, so we're going to keep on going. He continues his argument after that saying this. If anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need. So if anyone, he says, is out there. So he says, we know Christ died for us, that we ought to love, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And by the way, he says, if you see someone who has a need. Now, the understanding here, the, the original language makes us say that this is not just a passing glance. This is, I know that person, or I've become aware of that person, or I've become aware of that need, or I've become aware of a situation. He says, and if you know them, and it is a true and actual real need. And then he says this, but withhold compassion from him. Now, I, I just want to stop there for a minute because... Your version of the Bible has probably sanitized this verse. How many of you here have a version of the Bible that is not the King James Version? Okay. If you're raising your hand, your Bible has probably sanitized this verse. 
I mean, that doesn't sound good to start with, right? If you withhold compassion. But I want to show you what it actually says. Because sometimes, I don't know whether you know this or not, the American English publishers of Bibles think that you may not be able to handle what the Bible actually says. It may be too risque. May not be dinner talk. I get you real excited now, right? Here's what it actually says, right there. Isn't that awesome? Klese tan splaxa otu at atu. That was a German accent on a Greek phrase. So, just, I don't know, that's how they talked. I don't know. This is what it actually says. But if you see someone in need and you shut up the bowels of him for him. Okay? Walk through this with me. Klese means block or shut up. To stop. To prevent passage. You, you going with me here? Of the bowels. Y'all, y'all know what the bowels are? If not, ask somebody at lunch. They'll explain it to you. All right? If you stop up the bowels. You with me? Y'all don't act like you're with me. You with me? Of him, from him. So he says, if you stop the flow of what you have in your life, this is the next phrase in the scripture. Go to the next one. So he says, if you have the world's goods and see if the brother have need, and this, that's, that's what I said, the King James Version makes this clear. He shutteth up his bowels. Some of you are waiting to make sure I don't go further, but that's what it says. Of compassion from him. This is what it says. Go to the next verse. How does God's love reside in him? He says if you see somebody in need. If you know of a need. And you shut up the flow in your life. You may be full of something. But it in the love of God. It's pretty graphic, right? Here's what basically is happening here. John could not imagine a financially constipated follower of Jesus. I didn't get an amen there. I got to move on. Uh, John could not imagine some a follower of Jesus and would plug up the flow of compassion for their lives for other people. In other words, if you are calloused and unwilling to help those in need, you do not understand the love of God. Now, remember what this is based on, right? This is all together. Don't keep separate. Don't get, you got mental pictures in your mind now. I'm sorry. Like, don't get all that together, all right? What he says is, remember, we came to know what love is because what? Christ died for us. He gave us life. He gave everything he had for us. We didn't deserve it. We were worse than anybody else on the planet. We're all the same. Everyone's righteous things look like filthy rags before the Lord. We have all like sheep gone astray, each in our own way. There is none that is good. No, not one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And yet God looked upon us and died for us and gave to us the fullness of who he was in order that we might be saved. So how can we then look at someone out there that has a need and say, I'm sorry, I'm not going to help. That's John's argument. It's not mine. 
That's John. John kind of knew Jesus, right? He's kind of the inner circle. In fact, he was the inner circle of the inner circle. In fact, he was the one left at the foot of the cross as the inner circle one of the inner circle three of the inner circle 12 of the inner circle 500. He was at the center of it all. And he says that if you can live your life being saved by Jesus and turn your face away from need, then you need to check whether the love of God is in you at all. Basically, what he's saying to us is this, that we should be thrilled to do for others what others cannot do for themselves in that moment. Again, this is not the golden rule. This is not do unto others what you would want them to do for you. This is do unto others what they cannot do for themselves, but you are doing because of what has already been done for you. First John 3.18 continues and he says, Little children... John, by the way, when he wrote this, was probably, um, he was probably somewhere in his late 70s, early 80s. It would have been late in his life. Especially in a world where the average life expectancy was below 50, he would have been an old man. So when he calls anybody little children, nobody would have been offended by that. Let us not love in word or speech, but in action and in truth. And then he tells us this. This is how we will know that we belong to the truth and will reassure our hearts before him. This is how we will know that we are one of his. is by the way we handle these kinds of situations. Not by, did you say a prayer when you were nine? although that can be part of the process. Not by is your name on a church roll. Not by can you recite the Bible from front to back. The evidence of your salvation is how you act in those kind of situations. You see, here's the simple reality that the Scripture teaches is we believe that everybody matters to God, whether God matters to them or not. And maybe you're here today. Maybe you need to hear that, sto- that message. Maybe there's somebody here that needs to hear that message that you may not think right now. You think God is, has abandoned you or, or you haven't had much to do with God or you're worried about where you kind of fit in the whole thing or you're mad at God or you're upset with God. And all I know is Scripture teaches me again and again and again that before we could turn our face to Him, yet while we were sinners, God sent His Son to die for us. And all that leads me back to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're rich. We shouldn't be arrogant about it. We shouldn't put our hope in our money. Boy, people's lives have been ruined by that. Amen? We put our hope in God. And He wants us to enjoy the things we have. Listen, this isn't a guilt trip. This isn't a thing to say, hey, get rid of all your money. But He says, when you've been provided with good things, do what is good. Be rich in good works. Serve. Be generous, give, be willing to share, love. When you do that, you store up yourself treasure as a good for foundation for the coming age. They can take hold of what life is. You will live as you are called to give. We call this, this time each year, we mention it, we reference it called Be Rich. And it's the way we are to give, we are to serve, we are to love. This is actually a program that started in a church in Atlanta, Georgia, that has seen millions of dollars given to the causes of Christ in the last 10 to 15 years. 
In our own church, there are several ways that we encourage you to be a part of being good at being rich. Coming to understand that's who you are and being good at it. First of all, it's just to evaluate where you are spending your money, where you are spending your time, where you are spending your resources. And are those things primarily things that bring glory and honor to God? Is the first priority of your life things that will extend the kingdom of God? We encourage you, as we did last week, to give weekly to a local fellowship of believers. If you're a part of this church, that means here. There are other great uh, organizations out there. We work through Samaritan's Purse for the Operation Christmas Child. There are lots of great organizations in our community, in our world. But primarily, the way that the Scripture teaches is for you to give first to your local body of believers, your local church, as a part of that. And I believe that a functioning member of Christ, somebody that is regularly doing what God has called us to do, will regularly give to those efforts. But then every once in a while, we also ask you to do something extravagant. We do this during the season of Christmas for a couple of things, and I'll explain that in just a minute. Our date for this year is December 15th. We do a day of extravagant giving where on that day we ask all of you to bring in A significant, extravagant offering to be given to missions. Not a single dollar of what is brought in in that particular offering goes to anything here at the church. We started doing this four or five years ago, and here's what's crazy about that. That the the largest gifts in the history of this church to foreign missions through our Southern Baptist Convention have been half of what we've given in these offerings. So we give half of this to the Lottie Moon International Christmas offering, one that every bit of that money goes to missionaries on the field around the world spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. We only give half of what we bring in on that one day, and there's still been the greatest offerings that this church has ever given to that cause. I've told you this story before. One of the things I love about this church is the way that we have responded to this call of extravagant giving. Um, the first year that we did this, our offering to the Lottie Moon, the 50% that went to Lottie Moon, went up so significantly from what we had done the year before that I got emails and calls from the International Mission Board asking what we were doing to raise our giving to that level. I said, I asked them to give. And that's it. Now, in addition to Lottie Moon Christmas offering, we also support three other organizations that are doing mission work that have ties to our church. So we support Journey Point Church. That's a church plant in Stapleton, Colorado, the Denver area. We do mission trips with them in the summer. But this is part of our support for them in order to help them to have that basis to be able to reach people in Denver, one of the least evangelized cities in North America, not just the United States, North America. Some of that money also goes to Club 180 Ministries in Lynch, Kentucky, that many of our Sunday school classes and many of the people here have an intimate tie with, a a, a couple and Terry and Angie Burkeen that have ties to this church because Angie grew up here. Parents are still a part of this church. Friends that are a part of this church. We significantly help them through this offering. And then last year we added the Tennessee Baptist Children's Homes that takes children in the system and gives them a place with a mom and a dad overseeing it and the gospel being spread every day. And so our day of extravagant giving is our Acts 1-8 strategy. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. But we do it 
because of the compassion that Christ has shown us, we want to show to other people. I have no issue at all telling you, begging you, asking you to give on that day. 100% of it goes outside this church. But I believe that it shows a heart that is dedicated to seeing God's name being glorified throughout the world. And so when we talk about this idea that we are rich, we talk about the fact that we need to give, we need to serve, we need to love. I want to encourage you. I know that it's not officially Christmas season yet for many of you. Some of you were appalled. It was already decorated in the sanctuary when you got here. It's not Thanksgiving. Let's not skip over Thanksgiving. We had a women's event last night. It's the best time to do it. We went decorated, all right? We're going to celebrate the birth of our Savior. This week, I want to encourage you, as you're preparing your heart for the Christmas season, Advent starts next Sunday. As you're preparing your heart for that, I want you to pray about what God is calling you to give. Not just the day of extravagant giving. Maybe there are other causes. Maybe there's a commitment to giving here at the church. If it is to give here at the church or for extravagant giving, you can do that on Sunday mornings. You can do it on Sunday morning, the 15th is when we will do extravagant giving. But if you want to do it before then or on the way to then, please, you can do it online. Okay, that's the easiest way to do it online early. There's a drop-down menu on our giving that says Day of Extravagant Giving. Just click that. Find, ask how God wants you to give. Secondly, ask God how he wants you to serve. And there are lots of opportunities just within our church. Room of the Inn is happening every Sunday night. Always willing to have more volunteers come and be a part of that. There are places all around. This is the time of year you know that people give opportunities to serve. Maybe it is to commit to a mission trip next summer. Maybe it's to commit to going to to Denver or to Brazil or to go on a trip to Lynch, Kentucky. And then find some people, find some places where you can show the love of God. Don't let this Christmas season go that's coming up without giving, serving, and loving. Be good at being rich. Let's pray together.